It's wonderful to be back with you, home amongst friends. Um, as Mark said, we've, we've uh, known each other as, as families for a while, and it's just a real joy to be here and to see all that the Lord is doing in this place and, uh, and to be with you. So I'm going to be talking to you tonight from the Gospel of John, and we're going to be looking at some questions that Jesus asked. And as I was praying for you guys here, um, the Lord just laid on my heart um, some questions that I think he wants to ask us corporately and individually. Um, I work with a ministry called Ravi Zacharias Ministries and we have a centre in Oxford um, that's part of the university and as part of that I get to travel and speak and often um, share the, the gospel, the story of Jesus in quite hostile contexts. A little while ago I was in Turkey a few weeks ago and um, in that country there are over 70 million people and there are about 3,000 evangelical Christians. So it's, it's quite tough to be a Christian there. A few years, um, a few years ago, like five or six years ago, there were some famous martyrdoms that happened in that country um, when Christians, both Turkish believers and foreigners who were living there, were killed. And so it's a real privilege to go into a place like that. But I um, met a girl, she was 22, and um, she'd come to some of the meetings that I was doing, and I just asked her, you know, how did you come to know the Lord? And she began to share a bit of her story. <clears throat> she had grown up living next door to an Armenian family who'd been Christians, and she'd seen a postcard in their house of Jesus. And that visual image as a child just had stayed with her. She noticed whenever she went into their house that there was a different quality of peace and presence in that place. And she was attracted to that, but she didn't know much more than that. At university, she began to ask questions about faith and God and truth. And one of her friends became a Christian and um, started to share with her a little bit about Jesus. And she remembered the postcard. And she remembered that kind of longing for peace that she'd experienced in the home of Christians. And then one day, um, Jesus appeared to her. And it was on the 1st of June this year, 2012. And he said all kinds of amazing things to her. In fact, she found herself kneeling in front of a, of a cross and the cross split open, sort of down the middle. And Jesus walked through the cross and held out his right hand to her and said, you need to give me your right hand, will you come to me? And she put her hands in his hand and he pulled her through the cross into himself, into relationship with him. She was wondering, though, struggling after that vision, and she knew what the cost would be of following Jesus. And a few months later, she had another vision. And she was standing, and she saw the, the heavens ripped open, like wrenched apart. And she saw heaven, and she saw blue sky and rolling clouds, and she saw a throne, a big white throne. She never read the Bible. So if you're a Christian here, you'll know that in heaven there's a big white throne. She didn't know that, but she saw it. And she saw Jesus on the throne. And again, he held out his right hand to her. But she was struggling to know what to do. 
So she went away on a camp um, with, with my friend who was my host. At this point was in the story, my friend was saying, she's so spoiled, she'd already had two visions and she still hadn't come through. And uh, she went on this camp and she was kneeling down just as other people were worshipping and holding the chair in front of her and saying to Jesus, just please give me the courage I need to follow you. I know that you're real. I know that through the cross I can come to you. I've seen heaven, I've seen the throne. Jesus had said to her in heaven, I want you to be here with me. He says that to all of us as well. I want you to be in heaven with me. Will you come? She held onto this chair and she prayed desperately for the courage. The worship ended and she sat back down in her chair. And the woman who was sitting in the chair in front of her got up to prophesy, to speak. Not knowing this girl at all, not knowing any of her story, she said, I believe there's somebody here and you are asking God for the courage that you need to follow Jesus. And Jesus is holding out his right hand to you and he's saying, put your right hand into my hand, that's all you need to do and come to me. At that moment, she broke down in tears and said, yes, Lord, I'll come and, um, and came to know him. The Lord Jesus can be very familiar to people who are around church a lot. We sing about him. We don't have any pictures of him in stained glass windows in this church, but we're familiar with Jesus. He's around us a lot. But I wanted to share that story with you to start to remind us of the awesome greatness and wonder and majesty of the Jesus who is going to ask us these questions that we're going to look at. Now, in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus asks people individually 33 questions. You'll be relieved we're not going to look at all 33 of them tonight. We're going to look at three. And the first one comes in chapter 1 and from um, verse 38. So I'm just going to read it for you. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open them. So the next day, John was there with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. The first reason is that this is the first time that Jesus speaks in John's Gospel. If you have one of those red letter Bibles, when um, God speaks, it's in red, you'll, you'll notice it's very apparent. There's been a whole long, big, long chapter. There's been a big thing about John the Baptist, that his disciples, you know, asking him, who are you and who's the one to come? And John has pointed at Jesus, to his own disciples, and he said, look at this guy, he's the Lamb of God. So they go after him, Jesus turns around, and the first time he speaks, he asks this question, what do you want? What do you want? I believe the Holy Spirit asks us that question today. But I want you to remember who is asking. If you flick back over to John 1, you see this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John has just described 
Jesus Christ as what he calls the logos, what's translated here, word. The ultimate first cause of the universe, the creator of everything, seen and unseen, the author of life. I work with a guy called John Lennox. He's a professor at Oxford. He's a mathematician. He's well known for um, debating with the famous atheists today, people like Richard Dawkins and, and others. And um, I was with him just last Sunday, and John was saying, you know, if, if you or I were to walk on a beach and we were to see our name written in the sand, if I were to see the letters A, M, Y written in sand, I would not assume that some chance happening had created those letters and caused them to be in that sequence. I would assume that an intelligence and a personal intelligence had written my name in the sand, just three letters. And then he went on to say, you know, every strand of of DNA has 3.5 billion letters in perfect sequential order. God has written his word, as it were, in the very building blocks of the universe. And here John tells us, God himself, Jesus, is the word with a capital W. The one from whom all information, all language, all rationality, and all matter has come. The one who created everything, life itself. Jesus Christ, that's him. And so we we carry on in the gospel. We're we're intrigued. We're meant to be intrigued. And John the Baptist has said, just look at him. Will Will you put your eyes on the one who created everything that you see? Intelligent life. Rationality itself. And who entered the space time continuum that he made as a person. And now he's going to speak for the first time. And here's what he says. What do you want? What do you want? What a profound question. A question that philosophers have dug into. What's the meaning of life? What's the deepest desire of the human heart? What is life about? What's what's the purpose of existence? And Jesus Christ puts his finger on that essential question of existence for every human being. What do you want? Now it's interesting as we read in the passage, the disciples don't have a very impressive answer. Imagine the one who's created the space-time continuum, who's made matter, who's made everything immaterial like thought and love and language not just stuff. He's made everything. He's the guy who has the power to raise the dead, to walk on water, to make food multiply so thousands of people can be full after a a, a tiny amount of food has been provided. And he's saying, what do you want? What is your life for? What do you want your life and existence to be about? And they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? What's your accommodation like? We, we want to we know what, it, what it's like where you live. We're meant to laugh at that point. But Jesus has amazing grace. Verse 39, he says, come, come to me, come, and you will see. This is the opener to the rest of John's gospel. The whole of the rest of this gospel is just about that. Come and see. 
And as you come and you see Jesus, like my friend did, on his throne with the heavens ripped open, or walking through his cross, offering his right hand to come to him through the cross, or as you see him, as you do in the pages of scripture, the word who brought everything into existence made flesh, perfection in human form. Come and see, and as you see him, you begin to learn how to answer that question appropriately. What do you want? Jesus promises later on in John 10 that he, the purpose, the reason he's come is that you and I might have life in its abundance. That you and I might have life only through coming to him can that ultimate question be answered, that ultimate human hunger be satisfied only in him. But he asks us, what do you want? What do you want? Now, I want to ask you that question tonight. What is the deepest longing and desire of your heart in this moment right now? If God asks you that question, what do you want? What's the answer? Is it a life partner? A baby, we've just seen a baby being dedicated here. I'm sure there'll be people here who are struggling to conceive and that answer, your answer to that question is, I, I just want life, I want a child. Perhaps your answer to that question is that you desperately want freedom, freedom from the past, freedom from addiction. What do you want? Jesus says, come to me and see, come to me and watch me as I walk with you and you walk with me watch how I respond to that desire of your heart but if you're a Christian here tonight I want to ask you another question is your answer to Jesus question what do you want is it worthy of him is it worthy of the one who brought space and time into existence who calls you to walk with him and do amazing things with him. What do you want? Okay, the second question that I want us to look at comes in chapter two. And um, again, if you have your Bibles, um, I'm gonna read a few verses for us. John chapter two from verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Verse four, dear woman, here comes the question. Why do you involve me? Why do you involve me? Now, this is a brilliant question, it's amazing. Imagine the party's in full swing. And they're a little bit desperate because the food the food's all right, but the wine's run out. Now, I have to tell you, we entertain a lot. My husband and I have people over a lot. And it is actually one of my worst nightmares that we would run out of food or drink at an event. And we have experienced God multiply things for us. That is unbelievably stressful to someone like me. In a Middle Eastern culture, Near Eastern culture, it's unthinkably, shockingly, appallingly awful at a wedding to run out of wine. So when you read this, the, the, the writer of the gospel is expecting you to think, 
how terrible. And they go to Jesus, mother. Now, I'm now a mother. And, and, and so I read this in a different way. She goes to him and says, they've got no more wine. And here's the question he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Why? Now sometimes this story, the story of Jesus turning water into wine, is the, um, the sermon template for the great youth group um, ideal of Jesus the party animal. You know, we've all heard it. Jesus wants us to have fun and here it's proved in this text. I've heard that sermon a lot. But what we see here as we read is one of the most astonishing miracles that is a sign of who Jesus is and what he has come to do in the most profound way. Because what Jesus does in this miracle, as we'll see, is that he calls the servants and tells them to do something. Verse six, she says, the mother then says to them, just do whatever he tells you, just do it. He doesn't seem to be cooperating with me, but just if he does say anything, just do what he says. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. They're massive, okay? Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them, and notice what John says, to the brim. They're huge, these jars. And they're designed to contain water which is intended to cleanse people from impurity. That's what they're for. Not just to have a bath, but spiritually to cleanse people from the dirt that's in all of us as human beings. They're massive and they're filled to the brim. And there are six of them. They did so. He then told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from. What does Jesus do? He takes water stored in massive jars designed for ceremonial washing to cleanse people from the sin and the filth and the dirt that's in all of us. And he turns it into wine the color of blood. And he doesn't just make a little bit, he makes liters and liters and liters of this cleansing liquid. This is a sign, it's a demonstration of what Jesus has come to do and what he's gonna go on and do when he dies on the cross. That he's actually gonna shed his own blood, which we then remember at communion by drinking wine. You see, wine and blood in the Gospels. They're, they're meant to remind us of each other. This is a sign showing us that Jesus is able to cleanse, not just five of us here in this church, anyone. There's an enormous amount of this to utterly and definitely cleanse us. Jesus says, why do you involve me? It's only through his blood, signified by that wine, that we can be cleansed. As I was praying earlier, and we were here with the band and praying, I sense that there are some of us here who 
believe that in our lives there are insurmountable struggles and difficulties, battles that we have. And we've tried, we've had lots of prayer ministry, we've confessed, we've done whatever, you know, we've just tried. But we're actually now convinced, deep down, that some of those issues are insurmountable. Jesus says, involve me. His blood is enough and it's designed to cleanse. It's powerful, really powerful. This question challenges me because, you know, um, I don't know if any of you have come across Brother Yun, an amazing um, Chinese apostle in the underground church, and he talks about observing in the West, um, you know, after he came out of China, observing churches where everybody's so competently pursuing their programs and their things that really they don't actually need Jesus, you know, because we're all really good at what we're doing. And he describes a Christless Christianity that is so hard, it's really hard work. This is the opposite of that. Involve Jesus. Listen to what John Stott writes about the cross. I was um, speaking in evangelistically in uh, Denmark at Copenhagen University a couple of weeks ago and talking about who God is and what Jesus has done. And I use this quote, John Stott writes this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed Nietzsche was a brilliant atheist philosopher, in case you don't know who he was. But the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? John Stott writes, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Here's the question. Will you involve him? If you're not a Christian here tonight, will you involve Jesus in your life? Will you allow him to cleanse you? Will you allow him to do what those water jars signified, but what his blood shed on the cross went on to actually do, to be able to liberate and forgive and set you free? Will you involve him? But if you are a Christian tonight, here's the second question. Will you involve him in your Christian life? Will you wake up from a, a Christless Christianity? From living in a way that we have a vision from God, but actually we can fulfill it ourselves. We don't really need Jesus. 
Will you commit to pursue Christ and his kingdom in a way that would be utterly impossible to do if he were not at the centre involved? This is a challenge that my husband and I have personally really been massively challenged with. Um, My husband's a vicar in the Church of England and uh, we were in a church in Peckham for seven years and we saw God do amazing things. But towards the end of our, um, our time there, we sensed that he was calling us and stirring us to do something new. And the new vision was to plant a, a minster church and to build a minster church, which is how the early Christians evangelized Britain with um, communities and all sorts of, um, of, of different things. And we pushed various doors that seemed like the rational way to do this, to move. And it became very, very clear to us that God was calling us to completely step outside of our comfort zone to leave our thriving church, for my husband to leave um, his kind of secure package of a vicarage and a salary and a pension, and to start this vision from scratch. And we had sort of eight, eight of us, you know, we went from this great church of hundreds of people to eight of us in our sitting room with no building. And in some ways it was incredibly humiliating because as leaders, we, we see each other's value on the basis, we don't mean to, but we do, on the basis of, well, how many people have you got in your church? And, you know, how successful are you? And we, we knew we had to leave that behind. And as we were praying, lots of uh, words from God came. And uh, before we left, now nearly three years ago, my husband drew a map of where he felt God was saying we were going to build this church. And he drew a handwritten map. And the Lord gave us verses from the book of Kings where King David buys the threshing floor from a guy called Aruna. You can look it up uh, when you go home tonight. And um, there's a plague that's coming on the great city of Jerusalem. And David pleads with God in this place on this threshing floor and the plague is turned back on the outskirts of the city. Frog drew this map and we've kept it. We've still got it, a a hand-drawn map. And three years later, just this last July, we completed the purchase of a 70-acre farm. And if you lay his map over the real map, it is exactly the spot that God had showed us. Amazing. But we had to go through real struggles to get there. We've sold everything we have. Jesus said to us, I, will you involve me? Will you pursue a vision that is utterly impossible unless I show up? It's quite interesting. I later read back over the verse from, um, with David and Aruna, and Aruna tries to give David the threshing floor, and David says, no, I can't give the Lord something that costs me nothing. I say to Frog, little did we know it would cost us everything. (laughs) Quite glad I didn't read that bit at the beginning. We then discovered the farm that we've bought um, is just goes right back to the doomsday book. It's in the doomsday book. And we found the threshing floor of the farm, over a thousand years old. And that's where we believe and we hope we're going to be able to build um, this church. 
Will you involve Jesus? Will you ask him for a vision for your life that would be utterly impossible were he not to show up, were he not to do it? Is he at the center? Or is your Christian life doable, quite frankly, without him? Thirdly, verse, uh, chapter 9 and verse 35 um, from John's Gospel again. The context here, this is the last question. We're coming into land, I promise. Um, the context here is that Jesus has just healed a man who had been born blind. He'd never, ever seen... You know, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when miracles happen, you wonder, why doesn't God do the harder ones? Do you know what I mean? He, he, he can heal that person's thumb, but, but why, why doesn't he help the person in the wheelchair? And we know that he does help the person in the wheelchair. In this story, it's very explicit. Jesus heals a man born blind. Now remember, the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus Christ is the one who brought the universe into existence. He is the creator. He has that creative, miraculous power. Not only corrective, but creative, to create eyes that, have ne- that, can't, that um, couldn't see or to create eyes out of nothing. Jesus has that power. And he does it. He heals this man. And the religious people get really cross about it. They don't like it at all. They don't like the effect and they don't like what the man is saying. And they throw him out of the synagogue. So here we go, verse 35, if you're reading in the Bible. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he said, and here's the question, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, sometimes we think that title, Son of Man, is a bit like, you know, the Narnia story, Son of Adam, Daughter of Eve. It's like a sort of weird churchy way of saying you know, Jesus was a human being. He was a son of man. It doesn't mean that at all. If you flick back over in your Bibles into the book of Daniel, Daniel the prophet tells us who the son of man is. It's quite important to know this if you're going to understand the question Jesus is asking. So in Daniel 7, verse, um, chapter 7 and verse 13, we read this. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus says to the man who he's just healed with a creative miracle, born blind, sight restored, do you believe in the Son of Man? And I believe he asks us that question this evening too. Do you believe in Jesus in this kind of way? Do you believe that he is the one who comes on the clouds of heaven? 
Do you believe that he is the one who, the Ancient of Days is the, the name of God on the throne, Father God? Do you believe that Jesus can approach God, not like you and I would have to on our hands and knees? He can be in the presence of God and stand. Do you believe that Jesus is the one who has authority and glory and power? Do you believe that it's right and appropriate that people from every language should worship him? In other words, he's not a tribal God. He's not a God for people who happen to be born in a particular culture. He's a God, he's the God of the whole world and it's appropriate that every person worship him. Do you believe that his dominion is everlasting, that it will not end? It is not just universal, it is eternal. The man says, who is he? Tell me so that I may believe. Jesus reveals that's who he is. It's him. So here's the question. Do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in Jesus in that kind of way, that he's God, that he has authority and glory and power, that he's the one who will be the judge but he's for also the saviour for all people groups at all times. Do you believe it? If you do, it will shape how you live. It will determine the choices that you make. It's so easy to forget to live, as one of my colleagues says, as theoretical Christians but practical atheists that theoretically we believe in Jesus and God and the creed and everything, but practically we don't lean on him, we don't involve him. We live as if he's not there. And Jesus asks us this question to help us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to shape our lives around who he is. Jesus asks us today, just as he asks that man, do you believe in me in that way? A number of years ago, um, Frog and I were involved in a mission trip that involved um, smuggling Bibles into the Taliban. I haven't got time to tell you the whole story, um, but we, we got into the military headquarters of the Taliban and we met the top brass of the movement and we gave them Bibles. And we definitely expected to be killed at the end of that. Um, it was really amazing. And the guy who was the keeper of the Holy Quran, the religion minister, took hold of the Bible. And by the way, we were 19 at this point, so we didn't know better. <laughs> took hold of the Bible. And um, my, our friend, there were three of us that went, said, you know, this is the gift we've brought you from um, the UK. We were there as journalists. That's how we got visas. This is the gift, and we think this is the most precious gift we can give you. And the guy took the Bible and he said, I know what this book is. The keeper of the Holy Quran, the religion minister for the Taliban, I know what this book is. I've been praying to Allah for years that I could read this book. I'll read it every day until I finish. Jesus is the Son of Man. It's appropriate that people of every tribe and language and people worship him. When we were trying to get out of the country, we had some difficulties. The border people between Turkmenistan and Afghanistan wanted a bribe, and we didn't have any money. We were students, we had no credit card, and our water was running out. 
and um, Frog was desperately searching through Proverbs to see if there was anywhere in the Bible that said it was okay to give a bribe bash. We didn't have the money anyway. (laughs) And he said, look, if it gets really bad, you just cry and see if that works. And I cried and it didn't work. (laughs) And um, because of all of that, because of that, we, there were only two trains a week. It was a 17-hour train ride back to the airport. And there were only two trains a week, and these border guards made sure we missed our train. So we were completely stuck, middle of the desert, um, no train. We were going to miss our flight, no money, no credit card, running low on water, sandstorm starts. This is the point at which you are tested. Do I believe in God? <laughs> We've just seen... Bible's given to the Taliban, but now we're in an utterly desperate situation. Two days of back and forward, and we eventually got through the border. We got through, and we're standing in the middle of the desert. It's like it's a kilometer walk to the train station, and a car drives up, and they wind down the window, and the woman says in perfect English, can I help you? We were really hungry. We hadn't now eaten for over a day. That's the hungriest I've ever been. And she, we, we said, yes, please. And we explained our situation. But after that point, they didn't seem to understand any English. But they took us to their home and they fed us and they drove us for 14 hours to a bus place where we could get a bus to our airport the last three hours. After that first question, can we help you, they spoke no more English. And we were in the car, as we were in the car, we were just singing worship to God and the presence and glory of God filled that car like I've never experienced it. And they were weeping, we were weeping. And they were just, the only word we could understand that they said was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Turkmen people. Son of believing that Jesus is the Son of Man means believing that it's right and appropriate that the top brass of the Taliban, Joe Public in Turkmenistan, your friends, my friends, your workplace, my university context, my neighbours, your family, everyone that you know, everyone that you don't know, that it's right and appropriate that every person worship Jesus. That's what believing that Jesus is the Son of Man means. Can you see why he asks us the question? Do you believe it? Will you live in a way as if you believe it? Will you be available to the Holy Spirit to take opportunities to introduce people to the Son of Man? And here I close, three questions, let me recap. What do you want? question that defines humanity by the author of humanity a question asked to us tonight personally is your answer worthy maybe your answer is i want you to speak to me about the purpose of my life my calling what do you want second question why involve me will you involve jesus in a radical way turn away from a a christless christianity not, not trying to do it yourself, but inviting him, the one who turned liters of water into wine, signifying his purifying power to release us from the darkness in our lives. Will you involve him? Stop trying to do it on your own. And thirdly, do you believe in him as the son of man?